Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Teramasco to the podcast. Dr. Teramasco is board certified in internal medicine and currently an academic hospitalist at Rochester General Hospital. Thank you for being here. How are you today? Oh, very good. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Wonderful. Can you please begin by defining osteoporosis and how is it different from osteoarthritis? They sound so similar. Yeah, and there's actually a couple other disorders that sound very, very similar as well mm-hmm. um, that I'll, I'll touch upon. But essentially, osteoporosis, if you were to really just make it as simple as possible, is when you have weak bones. Your bones are weak. Um, basically, it, it's, you know, it's a situation where the bone matrix or what makes up the, the, our skeletal bones um, is weakened um, and increases an individual's risk for fractures. Osteopenia is similar in that the bone matrix is weak, but it's not to the severity of osteoporosis. So essentially, you can think of osteopenia as almost a precursor or a um, uh, the pre osteoporosis stage. Okay. Uh, we sometimes hear of pre-diabetes, someone that has insulin resistance, but they're not actually a diabetic. Mm-hmm. Osteopenia is almost similar in that, in that realm. Osteoarthritis, which we, we hear a lot, a lot about, um, a lot of times when we hear of the term arthritis, what people are usually referring to is osteoarthritis. And essentially, osteoarthritis is a common joint disease that basically affects mainly middle-aged and elderly people. And it, we refer to it as the wear and tear um, osteoarthritis. You know, it's basically a wear and tear on the joint itself. So mm-hmm. the, the cartilage um, gets worn down. And then uh, sometimes people will hear bone on bone. Mm-hmm. Basically, the cushioning between where two bones come together it deteriorates over time. And then you get an inflammatory response due to the, the wear and tear on that joint itself. And um, one has pain and, and one doesn't, correct? That's another absolutely, important that, factor. Yeah. That's actually a really, um, that's a common uh, misconception with osteoporosis. A lot of people think that there's pain associated with it, and the truth is that there's not. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's also something called osteomalacia. And osteomalacia is the... Um, the faulty almost assembly of bone because you have deficiencies in certain vitamins and nutrients required to create bone. Mm-hmm. That is sometimes painful um, and, and usually has proximal muscle weakness, um, that sort of stuff. But osteoporosis, unfortunately, is silent. Mm-hmm. There are very seldom any warning signs. Sometimes the warning sign is the first fracture that the, the individual has. Mm-hmm. So who is at risk for osteoporosis then? It's the silent disease. So who should be on the lookout? Really, so unfortunately, osteoporosis is far more commonly seen in in women. It it is seen in uh, in some men, and I'll get there, but um, it's really unfortunately 
it's a it's women's disease. And usually the women that are affected by it are postmenopausal um, women, mm-hmm. so our, our, our older female population. There are other people that are at risk for it, um, such as people that have um, autoimmune disorders, um, such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, people that are on certain medications as well, uh, for example, glucocorticoids like prednisone. These people are at increased risk. Mm-hmm. And then men still can get osteoporosis. And actually, men are commonly, the, the diagnosis is missed because it's not usually on most practitioners' radars. Um, but men that have hypogonadism, so low levels of testosterone, or men undergoing um, treatment for prostate cancer, which a lot of those treatments are androgen deprivating or inhibiting um, or you know, blocking testosterone. Those men can go on to develop osteoporosis. So I kind of break it down with women that have low levels of estrogen and men that have low levels, uh, low levels of testosterone. These are the people at increased risk. Um, is it because it, estrogen and testosterone are protective? Yes, there is a protective benefit of both hormones. Um, but with women, um, it even goes beyond that too. <laughs> so um, with women that, um, it's not just women that are necessarily postmenopausal, but it could be a woman that has had, um, uh, you know, a hysterectomy where it's involved her ovaries. Mm-hmm. So again, any, any situation um, that, uh, uh, you know, they have lower than normal estrogen levels. Mm-hmm. What about race, ethnicity? Does, are those risk factors? They are actually. Um, it's far more commonly, osteoporosis is far more commonly seen in uh, Caucasian and Asian women. Um, African-American women can still develop osteoporosis, but not as commonly as, as Caucasian. It even goes beyond race, and this is one of those situations where you don't want to be a toothpick, um, so to speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> so women that are that have a a body weight of less than 127 pounds are at increased risk for developing osteoporosis, which kind of surprises a lot of my patients because they look, well, aren't we told to always be in shape and lose weight, et cetera? And we're not 100% sure exactly how being underweight or low body weight increases the risk, but some theorize that when you're heavier, your your body and your bones are forced to move more body weight. So mm-hmm. there's more, um, <laughs> it, your bones are getting more of a workout, so to speak. Also, fat tissue or adipose tissue does produce estrogen uh, in some situations. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not advocating to be obese and that you'll <laughs> save yourself from osteoporosis, but, but one of the things your doctor might look at is, oh, this this individual is low weight and they could potentially be at high risk. And then how about genetics and environmental factors, so lifestyle-type habits? (laughs) Genetics are a frustrating thing for patients and and their doctors because there's nothing we can do about your genetics. And if you have a first-degree relative, a parent, sister, um, or a second-degree relative, um, you know, grandmother, aunt, uncle, that have developed osteoporosis, you're at increased risk. Or if you've even had any first or second degree 
relative that has had a fracture before the age of 45, you're at an increased risk of developing osteoporosis in your lifetime, Mm -hmm. especially if you're a female. But that's the bad news. You can't do anything about your genetics. Mm -hmm. However, (laughs) lifestyle plays a huge role. Mm -hmm. Um, Women that smoke have a much, much higher risk of developing osteoporosis, as do uh, women that um, drink excessively. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, environmental, meaning lifestyle. So exercise is a huge um, uh, way that women can help decrease their risk of developing osteoporosis. And a lot of times when I tell patients, oh, you need to exercise, people envision going to the gym, weightlifting, getting a personal trainer, five days a week, you know, getting a six-pack, et cetera. And the, the truth is, no. It, they've actually done studies where they've compared high-intensity workouts to low-intensity weight-bearing exercises, such as walking. Um, and they actually didn't see any significant difference. But what they did see was when women spent 30 minutes a day three times a week and were consistent about it, they had lower they had a lower risk of developing osteoporosis. And that's mainly because of the the weight bearing exercise does help promote um, uh, a stronger bone matrix and and it can decrease your risk of developing osteoporosis. Yeah. Okay, so say a person has d- a double whammy, they have osteoarthritis and so the joints really ache and mm-hmm the chosen weight exercises in the water, is that enough weight-bearing? Because now you're not weight-bearing really in the water. Is that enough uh, to prevent osteoporosis? That's a really good question that I don't have the exact answer to. Um, Water aerobics are excellent cardiovascular. It's Mm -hmm. the cardiovascular system and really is great at preventing you know, uh, further joint damage or inflammation. I don't know if a study exists where it compares that to walking, Mm -hmm. for example, Mm -hmm. because the idea is that you want a weight-bearing exercise to help with, you know, uh, to help. And with water aerobics, the whole point is to eliminate that, you know, that that impact on the joint. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I certainly advocate that anyone that has osteoarthritis, but then, you know, exercises such as yoga, for example, mm-hmm. um, can definitely have a weight-bearing component to it mm-hmm. um, and is not as traumatic uh, to the joint as jogging or walking would be, for example. Absolutely. One of the major benefits and one of the reasons why I teach the population that I do. What about your eating habits may be protective, um, again, for your bones? So, in general, a good diet helps with everything. I mean, this can be applied to pretty much every situation. You know, we are what we eat, and that is so true. Um, But having a diet where you receive, you know, an adequate amount of vitamin D as well as calcium uh, is crucial. You want about 1,200 milligrams of calcium a day. Most Western diets will provide us this amount of food, uh, this amount of uh, calcium. Mm -hmm. If not, you can divide that amount of calcium and supplement that three times a day with meals, um, and that would be more than adequate. Most physicians 
when they start doing the initial workup for osteoporosis, we'll check a vitamin D level and check a serum calcium level. Commonly, they're normal. Um, usually, when someone has prolonged, uh, you know, hypovitamin D or um, hypocalcemia, they're more at risk for developing osteoplasia than necessarily osteoporosis. But mm-hmm. certainly, you want to give the bones everything that they can need and th- so that they have basically the tools to make strong bones. So diet is important um, in that regard. And usually, if someone is suspected or is diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, if either their vitamin D or calcium levels are low, these are commonly supplemented but usually worked up first to isolate the reason for them being low. For example, sometimes women with, let's say, celiac disease, which affects the gut and mm-hmm. has issues with malabsorption, mm-hmm. sometimes these women have very low vitamin D levels, hmm. um, and they are, they're at increased risk for developing osteoporosis as well. So because there are no symptoms, it's a silent disease, how is it typically diagnosed? It's typically diagnosed by your primary care physician. This is my plug for having a really good primary care physician. Preventative medicine is so essential. It's far better to be proactive than reactive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times during follow-up with the primary care physician, they're aware of the risk factors that predispose someone to developing osteoporosis. And so they start screening um, if they have certain risk factors, such as an unexplained fracture or uh, a woman is postmenopausal, mm-hmm. they're 65 years, we start screening. And so it's really just close follow-up, regular follow-up with your primary care doctor. Um, but certainly some women come in that have educated themselves about osteoporosis, know they have a family history, possibly had a fracture, or you know just want to know if potentially they have osteoporosis. Lots of women go to their doctor after they find out a friend has osteoporosis and they want to be screened. So typically the, diag- the diagnosis is made by what we call a DEXA scan, mm-hmm. which is a dual energy uh, x-ray scan. And um, th- that is a test that takes about 10, 15 minutes, absolutely painless, and it's, it's ordered by your primary care physician. Different mm-hmm. disease processes have different areas in the body they t- typically target. Why does osteoporosis tend to happen in the spine and the hips, say? The, and what are the other common areas? So, yes, it, it commonly affects the spine and um, the hips. It, but usually, so osteoporosis doesn't just affect these two locations. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it affects all of your bones. But... These are areas that are at high risk for fracture due to their jobs. Okay, um, the, that makes sense. The, you know, when someone jumps, for example, the, the pressure between the, the knees is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, even, with, even with just walking, the amount of pressure that gets applied to the joint space is, is just absolutely amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about the human body, when someone's walking, there's a lot of weight being distributed over the hip and the vitriol column. Mm-hmm. And so when you, which is why we have cushioning between all of our vertebra, but, but as time goes on, if someone has developed a weakened bone matrix, and sometimes it's as simple as sitting down mm-hmm. or standing up. Or I've bumping into something. Uh-huh. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a patient that developed a, a compression fracture, which is basically where the, the vertebra collapses mm -hmm. from just taking out her trash. And she bent down to pick up something that fell on the ground, and she stood up, and there it went. Mm. So the reason we look at these areas specifically is because they're at the highest risk of developing uh, a fracture. Okay. Mainly just because of their job of carrying so much weight. Medical management. What does yeah. that entail? So medical management first begins with let's screen our at-risk patients. And then we decide if they have osteopenia or osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. So when we get the, the DEXA scan results back, you basically get a score. We call it a T-score. And a T-score is basically, it correlates, the, the T-score you get is either negative um, 1 to negative 2.4 or less than negative 2.5. Mm -hmm. And basically what it is, going back to high school math, is we, we take a standard deviation of all women around age 30. and We look at their bone density. And so when you get a T-score, that's basically a standard deviation from that mean. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is if you get a T-score of negative one, you're a standard deviation away, but that's okay. So osteopenia is between negative one and negative 2.4, and osteoporosis is greater than negative 2.4. Or a woman that has an osteopenic range of bone density, but has had a fracture. Um, so that's mainly how we diagnose. The treatment is first, if you have any deficiencies with vitamin D or calcium, we obviously supplement those. We promote dietary um, you know, and lifestyle modifications. That's paramount. But once you've already been diagnosed with osteoporosis, usually we initiate pharmacologic therapy. Commonly, there's several different classes of drugs that we use. Um, the first one that pretty much everyone has heard about are your bisphosphonates. Those are your first-line medical treatment for um, the management of osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. Bisphosphonates are a class of drugs that basically help by um, inhibiting the cells in the bones that help break them down. They're called osteoclasts. So it helps by blocking those, allowing osteoblasts, which are basically the bones reparative and building cells mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, to do their thing, so to speak. Bisphosphonates, there's a number of them out there. They're usually well tolerated for the most part. The most important thing is that when the patient is taking these drugs, that they are able to sit up for about 30 to 60 minutes after taking them and take them with a full glass of water. And the reason for that is if you don't, it can really irritate the lining of the esophagus and our stomach. The most common side effects are bone pain, sometimes fatigue. Um, they're generally tolerated pretty well. Okay. Um, and the dosing, some of them are taken you know, by injection, some are taken orally, mm -hmm. um, some are taken once a week, once a month. So it really depends on which drug your physician picks. So you have different classes of drugs that treat osteoporosis. Are there specific oh, yeah. classes that are less tolerated, have more side effects than others? 
right now it's more of which ones have been shown to give the most benefit. Um, bisphosphonates, when we review the literature, shows a benefit in reducing uh, fracture risk with ongoing use. They've actually been shown some women experience improvement with regards to their T-scores. Um, the other drugs are a little bit newer, um, and there's uh, drugs that are parathyroid hormone-like um, uh, drugs. Um, one example is terapyrotide. Um, that is a second-line agent. Sometimes if women are unable to tolerate the first the first line, they may be that may be used. Um, there's also a monoclonal antibody um, that is used, uh, denosumab. Um, that, that's a, a newer class of drug. And then... How does that one work? In, with denosumab specifically, it actually was used initially for the treatment of bone metastasis hmm. uh, in, in cancers. And it was discovered that, oh, well, it also seems to help with bone matrix. Um, the exact mechanism is beyond my expertise. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to misspeak, but um, it, it has been shown to help with uh, bone density um, in, in our osteoporotic patients. And the last kind of group of drugs that we have are selective estrogen receptor modulators. As I had mentioned earlier, that when women have low estrogen levels, um, you know, they, um, they're at higher risk of developing osteoporosis. Mm -hmm. So we sometimes will prescribe these selective estrogen modulators for these women. And especially if the woman has a higher risk of developing breast cancer, for example, we use raloxifene. So and, then this is uh, different than hormone replacement therapy. Yes. Okay. Yes. And actually, um, uh, hormone replacement therapy is not recommended for the treatment of osteoporosis. Mm. And to make one other little plug, I, I usually also, when I had said that men with low testosterone levels are at high risk of developing osteoporosis, I um, absolutely <laughs> discourage this is not an indication for androgen replacement therapy mm. or testosterone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. um, in your practice, when you're treating your patients, do you notice that there's difficulty with compliance to osteoporosis medications? And I know it individuals vary, but do you tend to see any patterns? Most of the patients that I have are the ones that are on bisphosphonates. Usually, I notice compliance is better when the having to the need to having to take it is less. So our, our, the drugs that you can take once a month or once a week mm. are far more easily taken, mainly because you don't have to remember to do it every day. Mm -hmm. So it's the ease. If it's affordable, those are big ones. Mm -hmm. But honestly, it's the compliance I've noticed when a patient knows, when patients really appreciate um, why osteoporosis is so important to know about and why it's so important to treat, they're far more likely to be compliant. You break a bone, that means you're going to have to go to the hospital, mm -hmm. need surgery. You're going to be in the hospital for a while and rehab. Mm -hmm. There's risks of infection and blood clots and all sorts of stuff, let alone the cost and the time. Fractures are not benign. You know, in elderly populations, a, a serious hip fracture can sometimes be a terminal event. Can osteopenia and osteoporosis be 
reversed? With long-term treatment of osteoporosis with bisphosphonates, some uh, patients do notice an improvement with regards to their, their T-score. But usually once that process has already started, once someone is osteoporotic, it's an irreversible case. Now, if we improve your T-score, um, that's wonderful. And usually we still will manage you because we want to maintain that. If, especially if you're osteopenic, we try to really encourage those lifestyle modifications mm-hmm. or dietary. Some situations when a woman has osteopenia, if they've already had a fracture, we will start a treatment with bisphosphonate, even though their T-score is not in the osteoporotic range. Mm-hmm. Typically, treatment is going to be for several years, um, and then we usually give a, 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 what we call a drug holiday. Is there anything else you can think of that you'd like to say that maybe we didn't cover during our conversation? One thing I will mention is that a, a special patient population, and that's, uh, those are individuals with chronic kidney disease. Uh, but as your kidney function declines, bisphosphonates become contraindicated. Okay. Um, it's something that they would want to talk to their doctors specifically about. Okay, and my final question to every guest mm-hmm. is, yeah. what does being healthy mean to you personally? Being healthy is, I, I think, more of a state of mind. You know, I, I take care of patients that you would look at that have nothing wrong with them. But if they are miserable as a person, hmm. they're not healthy. Mm. Um, you know, I, I have some patients that have horrible diagnoses that will live longer than some people that are completely healthy because of the self-inflicted things that people do when they're not healthy from a psychosocial issue um, or standpoint, rather. One thing I stress to patients is People, when they think of someone who's healthy, they immediately uh, will get a mental picture of what they think is healthy. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the way someone looks on the exterior does not necessarily predict or indicate that that individual is healthy. And so I tell my patients, don't don't compare yourself to others. What I rather encourage patients to do is take control of yourself and use your numbers and your various parameters, whether it be, you know, your body mass index or um, your, the way you feel, these are the, the better markers of determining if you're healthy or not. If you, you're doing what you want to do, you're probably a healthy person. Um, that's obviously overgeneralized, but it, I think that's really what defines healthiness is that you're you're happy with where you are at that, at that particular point. Mm. Um, and you are able to have the energy to do the things that you actually mm-hmm. want to do. I agree with you <laughs> that a state of mind is extremely important and how you look at your life and your attitude and having optimism and hope are very, very important. They're, they're intertwined. I really appreciate the time that um, you spent with us on the podcast and enlightening everyone on how to take care of themselves, how to, how to have healthy bones, and why it's important. I think what you're doing is great, and I think that the first step becomes educating yourself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your, your listeners, just by listening to this, have already taken that first step. And uh, that is 
far more important than than any test or any you know, anything else you could possibly do. Oh, what an amazing compliment and what an amazing way to to state that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now it's time for practical tips. Mind, body, and spirit tip from a story shared by Dr. Tara Masco. It was actually a patient who was 104, um, still drove, still drove at 104. And I asked her what her secret was, and that's what she told me. She's like, every year I, I told myself that I would travel to one place that I'd never been, learn something new, and at least read one new book every month. And she did that her most of her life. Um, and she said that that is what she attributed to her, you know, making it to 104. Thanks for being here. See you next time.